Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan here on the Nachum Siegel Network, coming to you live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, the cradle of Jewish civilization. I'm here in the control room with Stan and Judith Frank Hill. And once again, we have a very exciting show ahead. We're going to go national. We're going to go local. We're going to talk about the events of the day, things that have been said, things that shouldn't have been said, and a little, as usual, a little politics 101, a little inside baseball. But most of all, we're going to make it really entertaining because uh, there's always there's elections coming up. There's a special election coming up on February 19th which is this Tuesday. You think that people only vote in November, but not around here. Actually, believe it or not, you could live in certain parts, not in New York City generally, but you can live in certain places, whether they usually suburban or rural areas, that you might end up uh, voting three, four, five, even six times a year for different elections that the uh, that go on. Uh, you can have a election for village you can have an election for school board you can have election for your fire district you can have an election for your water district sanitary district dog catcher and the like so you could end up having a situation of many many different elections but there is an important special election coming up uh this tuesday and it's getting down and dirty as it gets down towards the end so we're going to discuss that later on in the program we're also going to discuss, speaking of elections, maybe some developments going on in the New York City Board of Elections, which bring to light some of our, some of the stuff we talk about in the Politics 101 series. And that, uh, that, that trend of kind of behind the scenes, the things you might not know about politics and elections and the mechanics of them and why some of the inside stuff is so important in how it works. And we're also going to kind of take apart, critique, analyze, the two big speeches that happened this week. There are actually three big speeches. We'll probably look at two of them, maybe two and a half of them. I refer to the State of the Union and the State of the City. That would be New York City. And uh, we have an important guest with us in the studio who's going to help us take it apart. But first, go through a little political headlines as we do every week and kind of look at uh, the things as they were and as we may want them to be. But uh, I think a, num- a number of, of important things went on, particularly today, we had a very interesting thing happen this afternoon, and I'm not talking about the fact that the uh, Carnival cruise ship uh, finally is on its way to port, and those people who haven't been able to take a shower for about a week or may finally have some relief later on this evening. I'm actually talking about the Chuck Hagel filibuster, and uh, we've discussed Chuck Hagel. We've probably devoted too much time to Chuck Hagel at this point. Because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But today we had a first on the floor of the Senate. It was a filibuster of a nominee for the Secretary of Defense. And there's a lot of strange things to go around. As I've said, I can't understand exactly why he was nominated. But it's the president's, president's prerogative to nominate somebody, even if he's controversial. I'm not really sure exactly why they're fighting for him with given all this opposition. I'm not exactly sure why, with so many things to criticize, why Israel has to dominate 90% of the discussion. There's a lot of things to criticize with regard to Chuck Hagel. But I'm glad Israel's come to the forefront, of course. That Saturday Night Live sketch, uh, irrespective, because I thought it was kind of... Or actually, I'm sorry, it was on the cutting room floor of the Saturday Night Live sketch. It didn't make it into the show. But if it's on YouTube, and I highly suggest going ahead uh, and taking a look at that one, and at this point, the man is waiting in limbo. They pressed the vote. They knew they didn't have the votes, which also goes to another rule of politics is uh, generally if you control the system, don't put something forward unless you know it's going to pass, especially if you can wait. But obviously somebody wanted to push this forward. Uh, Harry Reid was indignant and... The rest is history. We now have passed that first. So now the next time somebody, a nominee for Secretary of Defense is filibustered, it will no longer be the first time in history. But that leads me to just one thought as we kind of move forward. Uh, we move forward. We have two, we're have we in 2013. It's one year away from 2014, and we know those are the midterms. And then it's two years from there to 2016, which is a presidential year yet again. 
And what is at stake in 2014, those midterm elections? Well, as we talked about the before, the Democrats made gains this past s- cycle in the Senate, even though uh, it was felt that the Republicans might have a chance to take the Senate. They snatched defeat from victory. And right now, you're looking at another possibility, at least if you look at it now, that Republicans could go ahead and take the U.S. Senate. Why? You might ask. Well, there are seven states right now that the Democrats are defending in elections that Obama did not win in 2012. Alaska, Arkansas, Louisiana, Montana, North Carolina, South Dakota, and West Virginia. And Obama lost by at least 13 percentage points in all of them except for North Carolina. There, Romney won by two points. So you have a combination of some retirements, like in West Virginia, Senator Jay Rockefeller. And you have a situation where some of those Democrats are great, are potentially greatly endangered. Now, of course, you've got to find challengers for them. And this also assumes that the all the Republicans will hold their own. You have Ashley Judd, uh, who's going ahead and making noise about running, even though she doesn't even live in Kentucky, to go ahead and run against Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky. Which is always an interesting thing. I don't live in a state, but I might want to run somewhere else against somebody just because I'm a celebrity. We wouldn't know about that here in New York at all. That has never had. Uh, so there is a possibility that the Republicans are going for it, that they're going to say, okay, we're going to put it all in. We're going to fight, fight, fight to the end and go ahead and try and take the Senate. And that kind of explains a little bit of the posture. But then, of course, we come to the issue of the Republicans themselves not being able to kind of go ahead with a coherent strategy. And what do I mean by that? Well, we said we're going to talk about the State of the Union. And there was, of course, the traditional rebuttal to the State of the Union, made famous this week uh, by Poland Spring, who uh, did a little cameo commercial in the middle of Marco Rubio's rebuttal. But that was not the only rebuttal. Marco Rubio, who was the Tea Party darling a couple years ago, was out-tea-partied by Rand Paul from Kentucky, who gave the Tea Party response. For some reason, the Tea Party felt that Marco Rubio was not suitable to give the Tea Party response this time around. A curious thing, and I think that that kind of points to a lot of turmoil, as we've spoken about quite a bit within the Republican ranks, the Republicans still trying to figure out what they want to be, how they want to approach things, how they want to move forward. And Eric Cantor gave a speech to the American Enterprise Institute last week, kind of tried to show the softer side. I think that Marco Rubio also looking for that softer side. And, well, let's see. I guess the proof is going to be as they move forward, what happens, what happens with the immigration reform what happens ultimately with the sequester? What happens with a lot of these big issues out there? And I think that we will certainly take that apart as the weeks go on and try and figure out what the future is going to be as we approach, as, as we go constantly through this election cycle. Two other headlines I think that are notable as far as elections are concerned is uh, Frank Lautenberg has decided this afternoon that he is not going to run. I know it's not a big surprise because we discussed it, I think, two, three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, that Frank Lautenberg was going to be challenged by Cory Booker, superstar, uh, superstar mayor of Newark, and that really Lautenberg was probably not going to win a primary. At least that's how it looked to a lot of people, and he was... Certainly, but he wanted to do things on his own time. Well, I guess today was that day. That was the time that Frank Lautenberg wanted to announce it. So he also did it that his staff put out a 13-page manifesto as far as his accomplishments. Instead, Now, you've been around for a long time and you have 13 pages of accomplishments, but uh, I'm sure that uh, people like our first guest are also good at quantifying and qualifying many of the accomplishments of their uh, principles. So... It's it's certainly something that uh, is called for in politics. And I think uh, Frank Lautenberg, because he retired already once, already had his name on quite a few buildings out there, including uh, that transfer station in Sea Caucus, which is quite a nice train station. So I have to give him credit for that. The other thing is the political resurrection 
or actually I shouldn't call it a resurrection yet, but the potential political resurrection of one Tom Swazi. You might remember Tom Swazi as the county executive in Nassau County once upon a time who somehow lost to a very much unknown challenger, Republican challenger named Ed Mangano. Swazi at one point considered a superstar within the state Democratic Party, really made a very uh, strange quest for the governorship shortly after uh, being reelected the first time to uh, as as county executive and then decided to run for governor because he was determined to uh, fix Albany. Well, he's decided he lost once, but he is going to come back and try and fix Nassau and we shall see. But a interesting, interesting uh, developments certainly out there in my home county of Nassau. So we are pleased to have once again in the studio, Stu Lozer, founder and CEO of Stu Lozer and Company and the press secretary for Mayor Bloomberg for Eight or so years? Six and a half. Six and a half. Well, look, we always round up in politics. It's part of your accomplishments, uh, Stu, so uh, we might as well embellish a little bit. I'll give you a page a year, and we can – it's just six and a half pages. Okay, excellent. So, Stu, uh, let's just uh, talk a little bit closer to home right now. State of the city, a little bit uh, sentimental for you, the last one being today, melancholy. What's the feeling that you have when the the old boss gets up there and gives his, uh, his final address? You know, when he walked through everything that he's done in the last uh, 11 years, all the accomplishments, all the statistics, lower crime, higher graduation rates, and longer life, it really is extraordinary. It's, it, it, it took an it took an hour, it took an over an hour to sort of go through everything that he that that we've done together, that the New Yorkers have done, that the mayor has done, and there was a lot in there about what we're going to do in the next year. But it, it really was it really was pretty breathtaking to to sit down and think through where we were in 2000 the very end of 2001 the beginning of 2002 and where we are today and and sitting in sitting in the in in a stadium that had been a hole in the ground in in a part of Brooklyn that was that that you would never have thought would have had professional sports in it in in a city that was ready and willing to sort of accept itself as less than it had been a city that wasn't going to come back a city that was going to take decades. What you're saying, come back? We're talking come about back from, from September 9/11. 11. Okay, that, that, that was going to take, not come back from the Giuliani years. No. Okay. That was going to take it was going to take decades to sort of nurse its wounds. To think how far we've come in the last 12 years, it really it really was extraordinary. So it couldn't have been shorter than an hour. That's that's pretty much what you're saying. It, they, I, look, I think he could have gone on all day. He could have gone on all day. Okay. He could have done. He could have done 22 pages. Well, that certainly. So I, I like the idea of the backdrop. They've always been very good with the backdrops of the Barclays Center, and certainly uh, it's it's good to take credit for the project, even though it was on state land, I believe. It was, and, and, and actually, I was, I was ta- as I was talking to uh, to Bruce Ratner before the speech, he he said that. Um, this be during the during the the from 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 conceiving this project to 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 today had four governors one mayor um and and it gives you a sort of sense of how long it's taken but he went out well, of his way. There were some abbreviated terms in there were. That he went time. out of his way and Tom Swasey never had one but he went out of his way to praise your old boss George Pataki says George Pataki fought for it he understood the importance of it he understood what an anchor it was going to be for housing what an anchor it was going to be to to for 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 showing the world about the rebirth of Brooklyn and and he could not have been kinder about governor governor Pataki so where are we with that housing and that part of the project uh, the mayor said today that the first phase is, is on its way it's on its way yeah. okay how late are we on that and i'm not blaming it's not a mayoral's thing that's a private sector thing but it's public private partnership look, give, give, look uh, i don't remember the exact i don't remember the original due date but uh, the original promises but there, there wasn't an expectation that the world economy would implode in the middle of this and that banks banks would stop lending and that that, that uh, capital markets would be fundamentally un- inaccessible. So I guess there is that feeling with these big projects that uh, everything will be rosy forever when you when you start them. But and does that speak to some of the challenges of New York and New York City actually, to, I mean, I to not be able to build do such grand projects and not actually being able to see them through? Look, if there hadn't been NIMBYism and there hadn't been court suits and there hadn't been delays for people who purported to but didn't actually represent the community, then 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 shovels would have been in the ground earlier and the, and the, and the project would have been, if not entirely, at least mostly done before the financial crisis hit. Look, it's New York. These things happen. People sue. People sue every day. 
you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot you can do about it without restricting people's rights to have a legitimate grievance heard in court. So, you know, I mean, it sort of is what it is. It's still extraordinary to anyone who has, hasn't been to the Barclays Center. If you can find a game or a show or the ice capades, something that you want to go and see and bring your kids, bring your family. It, it really is. It's, it's, it's an incredible space inside. It works better than any, any public sports facility I've ever seen. And, uh, and people love it. It, it definitely, it's a very impressive structure. It's a very, Definitely a great location, well served by Mass Transit, I should say, and uh, very convenient from Long Island as well. So definitely a feather in the cap. I think there were certainly a lot of doubters over the years over whether this would uh, go on. What do you see as a change in the mayor and the administration from when you joined six and a half, seven years ago to now? What, what is, how, how does the mayor look at his final year? And uh, what he wants to do. I think the mayor was. Pretty- is, there, is there a different? I know there's there's got to be some more of a sense of urgency, but there's also uh, looking at the legacy. You're looking back a lot more if necessarily than you might be looking forward. Yeah, if you if you beyond what we've done, if you were to encapsulate the, the mayor's view, Mike Bloomberg's view of what's 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 coming and what we want to get done in the next year. Five times in the speech today, he talked about special interest. He talked about how now is the time to get big projects done, to get rezoning of the east side of Manhattan done, to get, um, to get, to get cost controls on parts of our government where we spend two or three times what other cities pay because, because, because one or another, as he said, special interest, and they are special interest, has, has, has political power. Um, we, Mike Bloomberg is not, Mike Bloomberg, You've been in office – if you stay in office for 10 or 12 years, you're going to disappoint some people some of the time and some people are going to get upset with you. I think most people can agree that A, he calls him as he sees him and, 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 and he doesn't play politics and B, we've had a singular opportunity to to have a guy in office who doesn't listen to who the people who are endorsing him want what what they want or what the people from his political party want he's an independent he's independent politically he's independent financially and that has really allowed us to do extraordinary things in new york and as he laid out today it's our obviously our hope that that that's the way it's going to be in the future but if not then you know the window's 300 and some days left now just not to quibble but i think what i heard there is who is he listening to if he's not listening to other people? It's, it's Actually, he listens to everyone. Oh, he's, oh, not, listen. he's, not, okay. he's not listening just to the people the, who collect okay. petitions for him, put him in office, put him on their ballot line, give him money. Um, being financially and politically independent has allowed him to call things – do things as – as do what he to thinks is right. A lot of bike lanes. You know, um, bike, the bike lanes that are, that less 60, styrofoam. Sixty-five percent of New Yorkers are, are are in favor of the bike lane, so um, I, I'm not out of favor with them. It's just a it was just a question if, as far as uh, who who it is it, who who is getting it's, who it's it, it's easy to sort of break you know to, to listen to an echo chamber. I um 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 Mark Weprin, the the city councilman from from Jamaica states and and that parts of Queens said uh, that said somewhere recently is it read it yesterday or today that he's that bike lanes are extraordinarily popular in his district, and I, look, I, I, when I think of places in the city where people bike around, I don't think the most, one of the most suburban, if not the most suburban area of the city, Jamaica states. But he well, they, they actually have some great bike paths out there, going from uh, uh, Cunningham Park all the way east. It's uh, Tally Pond Park. You should try it one day. I, so we'll 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 go we'll go out there over the summer. So uh, we'll let's just uh, anything with the Quinn speech uh, that. When she went out and kind of uh, was pretty strongly calling for the return of, uh, I guess, 421A uh, uh, for real estate tax credits and what everybody else was kind of saying was a giveaway to the real estate community. That was a lot further than uh, Bloomberg has been willing to go. And was she trying to out Bloomberg Bloomberg? Okay, I think this is the, 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 you know, the, 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 the devil's in the details. What matters are, are the numbers and how they work. She, um, She's arguing that there's that there's a cap. It's hard to explain this in a couple, even in a couple of minutes. But if you have a building that has affordable housing, that's your housing, job, Stu, to, to explain things anymore. in a very short time. Not anymore. Here, here's what it is. There's, if you have, it's a tax treatment of certain buildings in which you have both affordable housing and market rate housing, regular housing, regular apartments. Um, and, and the question is, where are you going? Where, where are you going to put the cap? If it's at twenty percent, if it's at twenty five percent, if it's at twenty eight percent. Look, you know, getting the numbers right uh, is. Um, 
is hard and getting it triggered just to the point where people where she wants it to be is that that developers don't make money but don't lose money on on affordable housing and that's the way to incent them to to, to work. The how original proposal incent- that we how are people out. incentivized if they're not going to make money? This is something that I that I'm trying to figure out because I heard her on the radio I think this morning saying that. They're not profiting. I, I don't they're want that. Tax, they're getting it because if it's an 80-20 building, they're getting a tax abatement that affects the entire building. Therefore, the 80 percent, they're not specifically making money on those in, on, on those. Uh, don't don't you want to incentivize people in everything that they do? Is isn't that isn't that well, part? The question is if you know look any taxes that 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 any tax incentive that's given to one person fundamentally look there there are fixed costs in the city. There's pension costs that are that are that are. Set by law and, 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 and exploding and there's a wholesale unwillingness by people in both political parties to deal with it. There's retiree health care costs, which fundamentally is almost impossible to deal with them because they've been given, there are benefits that's been given to people and in the New York State Constitution, you actually can't take. Well, the retiree health costs actually are different. Well, the, the, the retiree the health costs you actually can touch. Well, you, you, you can. Okay, you're right. You can't, t- you can't touch the retiree health costs, although good luck. Um, both. Both both political parties have been known to to respond to union pressure, and um and you know any money that's given away to one group or any money that's not collected from one group fundamentally comes from everyone else. So it's my my understanding what the speaker's view is is that um the right the right balance is that people don't lose money, don't make money on this, and overall it's a tax incentive. Um, she says that the numbers. As they sit now, are right, and I, I can't speak to that. I can't speak that the earlier proposal was was too generous to to people who were making significant profits. So let's go to a quick segue. Since we mentioned kind of neutral uh, neutral incentives or neutral budgeting, the president put forward a State of the Union address and all these proposals, a great laundry list of all kinds of great things that he's offering out to the world, uh, pre K and all kinds of uh, all kinds of goodies. And none of it is going to cost a dime. It's just about smarter government and doing more. Well, that's already said. He said that the proposal altogether, all the proposal would would not be um, would would not cost. If you know, it's it, it, it's it's a. I think it, he said that this will not add one dollar to the deficit. True. Yeah. If 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 the uh, if the closing of the tax loopholes and all the other savings that he identified are 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 true. Now look, I mean, a lot of people out there squawking and complaining. Um, they're people. They're, those are similarly. Similarly, those are people who who idolize, um, deify Ronald Reagan, who did the exact same thing. Ronald Reagan was proposed massive tax cuts, massive defense buildups, and and if only we had 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 gone through his. Only if the Democrats were in control of the Congress thirty years ago, um, had gone through his entire plan, it would have been revenue neutral. It would have been deficit neutral. But instead, what we had was was deficits. Uh, um, as far as the eye could see, deficits that were were were, were, were well, never going to get fixed until Bill Clinton fixed them. Okay, but now we're in 2013, and we're looking at a very large national debt. I think significantly higher at this point, uh, uh, at a 16 trillion dollar level, which is quite a bit higher than it was when uh, during when the first term of Barack Obama uh, commenced. So, are we not are we not looking at a situation where we might want to start dealing with that. I, I don't. I don't see with all the fiscal issues out there, okay. And they, they've certainly been on people's minds, whether they be the debt ceiling or the fiscal cliff or the sequester. And people are learning all these new terms as we go along. Uh, don't aren't people interested in getting our debt under control? Are we not? Well, you know, look, we just had a national referendum on it. It's called the presidential election. This was not. Oh. A, this was not a secondary issue. This was. Actually, probably the single biggest issue in the in, in the presidential election, the the treatment of uh, how we're going to how, how whether and how we're going to close loopholes, things like carried interest, things that disproportionately affect um, um, wealthy New Yorkers, whether well, wealthy Americans and particularly New Yorkers, what the tax rates are going to be, and and really quite centrally, I mean, this is this, Mitt Romney made this absolutely central to the race by arguing that 47% of people get more from the government than they give. This was what the election was about. What you saw in the State of the Union, and, and I don't work for the president, I, I, I don't well, that's never, why, I've never for the president. That's why we have is, you is, here is as a, a guy, neutral. Is, what, you, what you saw was a, 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 a ambitious, far-reaching, detailed plan that people on both sides, I, I, I was retweeting during the at, the, at the end of the debate, tweets in support from Ari Fleischer, who is George Bush, 
George Bush and before that Elizabeth Dole's spokesperson, David Gergen, who worked for Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton in the White House, um, praising the, the depth and the breadth and in, in Ari Fleischer's case, the, the voting reforms that the president proposed. This is a, this is a president who has won an overwhelming mandate by this country, both in the popular vote and the electoral college vote for a vision and he was laying out how to, how he's going to do it. Okay, let's get to the response for a second then. The Poland Spring moment. What? I'm sorry, what happened? What happened? Yes. Okay. Oh, well, then I guess we'll skip that one. I, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it was, look, you, you, you got in my, I'm not, um, I should have made it multiple choice too. You should, sorry. You should, I, you should, yeah, I, um, you, you have to admire Marco Rubio's staff and, or maybe Marco Rubio himself by, by the next, Afternoon, they had a water bottle that you could get by going to Marco Rubio's pack. Always a fundraising you, opportunity. Always a fundraising opportunity. Twenty-five dollars, probably made in China, but you know they're already on their way here. And uh, and 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 they've done the bit. Look, you. I wouldn't want to drink water from China, Stu. You may already have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Okay, and the fact that there was a Rand Paul Tea Party response. You know, um, not covered by every network. How did Marco Rubio not be? Not remain the Tea Party darling. Look, you can't be, you can't be, you can't be the establishment. Is that because the, because the immigration thing? Is that what uh, is that what knocked him out? Look, I, you know, look, there are a lot of things I can explain. The, the, the sort of the thinking and the and the and the consistency of the rationale within the leadership of the Tea Party is not something that I'm actually been, ever been able to figure out myself. So it's not something that I'm able to. explain. Maybe they just don't like Spanish. That could that could certainly be. Uh, we're here with Stu Lozer on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I want to bring another voice into our conversation. We have Celeste Katz. From the Daily News, who is the author of The Daily Politics, a really wonderful blog and something everybody uh, who listens to this show should certainly be following. I, I don't know if I'd call her an adversary of uh, one time of, of Stu. Uh, I think more of a contemporary and a colleague. You know, this morning we saw them, we saw we saw a borough president, Marty Markowitz, Brooklyn borough president, Marty Markowitz. Um, you didn't even let me welcome Celeste yet. Introduce well, Celeste. Introduce, welcome. Introduce, introduce the mayor, Hi. saying that they have the same birthday. Celeste Katz and I have the same birthday. She's uh, eight hours old. I'm, I'm six hours older than she is. That is true. That is true. Stulos and I, you have the same birthday. So that's great. I will be sure to send you the same email as uh, with the same birthday card <laughs> attached on that same day. I well, we'll try and tailor it a little bit. But uh, Celeste, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you for having me, uh, Celeste. I actually wanted to. Because I know you've been covering elections, the board of elections, over the past week or so, which is a very interesting thing. I was looking, thinking during that uh, State of the Union address about the 102-year-old woman who waited online for how long to vote? Uh, yeah, it was something like, what, I mean, like a ridiculous amount. That was like 18 hours. I mean, it wasn't maybe it wasn't quite that long, but it was something, you know, pretty, it, pretty dramatic. Could that possibly be true? I mean, where where can you, even in New York City, you can't wait that long to vote? Um. I think that I'm not sure if I'm getting the exact number right. I could I could probably Google it while we're sitting here, but I think that probably what they intend to demonstrate is somebody who would who would wait despite you know extreme age and and discomfort maybe um, to exercise this right that's very important. And the president did talk about about fairness in elections and, and access to to the ballot and to to voting um, in the State of the Union speech. So I guess that's your tie into to what we're talking about here locally. Yeah, absolutely. But the, you know, I think the, or at least I read somewhere that they have mail-in voting in wherever she lives and the like. There are a lot of options for people. You don't really have to sometimes go ahead and the, the remedy for that is not necessarily to uh, go ahead and allow people to register uh, five minutes before they go ahead and vote before we've verified who they are. Is it? Oh. Well, I mean, that, I guess, I mean, obviously that depends, you know, it varies from state to state. I mean, some states, uh, we're talking about having early voting here um, uh, in New York. Uh, Florida does have uh, I think early it's a good voting. Idea. They have, uh, you know, certainly absentee ballot voting, uh, mail voting, overseas voting, uh, military voting. I mean, all the things that we have in New York. So there are definitely a lot of ways for people to cast their votes before they actually have to, you know, would actually have to go into a voting booth or stand in front of a scanner. Um, so, you know, that, that is something that's still under discussion right now. So I would hope that, uh, next year for the election, the, that, that young lady will not have to go ahead and bear the colds and go out there and, uh, have to wait for hours and hours to vote yet again. But let's get, uh, before we get back into political stuff, uh, 
Let's talk about what's going on in the City Board of Elections. It's kind of been in the news, and I guess just start off with two questions for you. Number one is, why would anybody care about the City Board of Elections in New York City, or any Board of Elections for that matter? Uh, essentially, it's like a ministerial type of action, right? I mean, they just deliver the voting machine, you vote, and then they go home, and you don't have to worry about them ever again. Or that's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Board of Elections does. Well, I think the the Board of Elections... Um, for, for all its problems, serves a very fundamental and important purpose in 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 our democracy in New York City and you know anywhere anywhere that that people have the right to vote and you know of course remember not everywhere do people have this right. Um, so they but what do, do they do? Than, what does the Board of Elections do? Um, they do a lot of things. They do a lot of things. They um, they set guidelines and regulations for um, how. Elections are conducted. They um, they handle all the equipment. They set the printing of the ballots. They uh, handle the petitions that people have to file to become candidates. Um, they uh, they actually run run the elections. They hire the poll workers who sign people in. Then they gather and tally the ballots. They actually uh, you certify the election and send it to the state board of elections to be certified. I mean, there's a lot of things that they do. Um, Besides just, uh, you know, show up with a bunch of, of voting machines on Election Day. There's so a lot of stuff that goes into this. The New York City Board of Elections has had their issues over the last couple elections. They've they've miscounted in a couple times. Uh, they've had that issue during the uh, Wrangell election where they kind of lost some votes and found them afterward. Uh, at, and now there also seems to be a change in the elections commissioners. So. Why don't, can you address that for us? Sure. There is um, there is a lot of, of stuff going on right now. Um, what you're talking about specific to the uh, to the elections commissioners, there are ten uh, commissioners who sit on the board of elections. There is one Democrat and one Republican from each of the five boroughs, and usually those people are are recommended by the political parties uh, from each borough. Uh, in this case, there was. Um, Apparently, a lapse, um, a failure to recommend uh, the reappointment or the appointment of commissioners before a certain deadline that's provided for in the law. So, if that happens, um, the law states that the um, the members of the legislature from that party, i.e., the Republican Party, uh, in two cases that we're talking about, can go ahead and name the commissioners and appoint them. So, there are only four members of the city council here in New York. Um, who are, are Republicans, and they have gone ahead and unseated two sitting members of the Board of Elections, and they have uh, replaced them with their own selections. And this is uh, this is an absolute coup. A lot of people are, are really stunned by this. It's not that uh, it has never happened before in the in the history of the world, but um, they saw an opportunity and they took it. So what happens now? This is a situation where you. The, the parties are supposed to control the Board of Elections, and now you have councilmen controlling the Board of Elections. Well, the, the parties, what happens if they don't agree? Well, that's, a, that's the, uh, the hot question of, the, uh, of the, the whole situation. I mean, usually the, the parties um, are supposed to nominate somebody, and I mean, unless they're you know, totally unfit for office, it goes, through, it goes through a process, you know, the city council is involved. And um, the people are reviewed, and they get appointed. And some of these people serve for a very long time as holdovers. Um, a lot of times, the guidelines that were taken, you know, taken advantage of or triggered in this case, get ignored. So usually, yeah, the county parties get to pick somebody, and it's a bipartisan agency. It's basically every job. There's almost almost every job. There's a mirror image. There are two jobs. One is held by a Republican, and one by a Democrat. The, the control of the board itself is split 50-50. If you have a, the executive director is a Democrat, then the deputy executive director will be a Republican, and that goes for all the, um, the satellite offices in the boroughs as well. So, yeah, it's definitely connected to the party, but what will be interesting to see is um, in the case of Queens, which is now uh, in litigation um, in Supreme Court, um, state Supreme Court, I should say, not uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, um, what's happening right now is that they are fighting about whether the members of the city council had the power to do this. And um, that's important partly because the commissioners not only have control over um, 
regulations associated with voting, but they can hire and fire people. They can promote them. They can give them merit bonuses. And there are hundreds and hundreds of, of permanent and temporary workers at the Board of Elections that largely come out of the political party system, or what you would call a patronage system, uh, where they're recommended to the commissioners of the Board of Elections by the head of the local party or his designee. So it, there's a very, very close connection between politics and what is ideally a, you know, a bipartisan and almost therefore nonpartisan agency that just runs elections. Right. So if you're not a member of the Democrat or Republican political party, you're a member of a third, fourth, or a smaller party here in New York, or you're not a registered party member, you're essentially disenfranchised from this process. Well, the, uh, you know, the two major parties are the ones that control the board of elections or that are, are mainly represented. I mean, there are, you know, there are options for, for other people to, to make their views known, and certainly if people, anybody who gathers the requisite number of signatures um, can, get, can get on the ballot in you know, certain ways. I mean, you'll see somebody go out, and maybe there doesn't exist a, you know, we need uh, lower property taxes party. You know, maybe that party doesn't the exist. Rent is too damn high party. I think that was what it was. Something like that. But, you know, right. if you can get enough signatures, I mean, like, if you look at uh, Charles Barron uh, from Brooklyn, when he ran for governor trying to get ballot, uh, ballot status for the Freedom Party, and he got a lot of signatures. I don't think they actually qualified. And at the same time, if you don't have enough people participating in your party, you can lose ballot status, which happened to the Liberal Party back in uh, 2002 when, um, when Andrew Cuomo was the candidate. But he, he dropped out of the Democratic primary. He couldn't get off the line in time. And if you don't get 50,000 votes on the line, you lose ballot status. So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of different moving parts here. But, yeah, I mean, your, your basic assertion that, yes, the two main parties control the Board of Elections, the Democrats and the Republicans, is correct. So, Stu, uh, just your boss wanted to abolish the Board of Elections, I think, a couple times. He has uh, called it dysfunctional, incompetent, all kinds of creative words that you probably uh, gave to him. Uh, is this why? I mean, what, he, he, he what's the want... problem with the Board of Elections? The problem with the Board of Elections, as, as Celeste points out, and as you point out, is that the the board of elections are controlled by the political parties the very people who control the uh, who who have a, have a stake in the outcome are the ones controlling it it's not done use the word ministerial if it's a true ministerial function then it would be done by by people who aren't appointed the the department of buildings well who should appoint them the the it's a great question. They could uh, be elected. They could be elected. There could be a, there could be a, there could be a, a pool of various elected Well, officials. then they'd be elected by the parties, essentially. Well, they could have like a blue panel, uh, excuse me, a blue ribbon panel or an outside organization that screens candidates or something like that. But then you'd still, you'd still probably have power balance issues because what if somebody randomly decided that, that eight out of ten people who were qualified to run the board of elections were Republicans or were Democrats, then everybody would scream. So you well, if you had that. elections, the likelihood is, in New York City at least, they'd all be Democrats. But on the board of elections as it stands, even though Democrats have about a six-to-one enrollment advantage um, among the electorate, the Democratic and Republican parties are equally represented uh, in that agency. Right. You know, the, you know there are tens of, if not... Tens of thousands, if not more, jurisdictions in the United States. The overwhelming majority of them have figured out a way to have people who aren't representatives of the political party run parties run the run the elections. I, I there are a lot of fantastic people who are involved in this process. There are a lot of the process that exists it isn't necessarily the fault of the people who are in them. And there are, are honest, overwhelmingly honest, dedicated people who 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 do this for us because this is the system we have in New York. But there are better ways to structure this. So I, would this be chalked up as a as a, a failure of the of of the Bloomberg administration? This wasn't necessarily something he invested in heavily. He liked to criticize it. Well, he, put a, I, he actually put a lot of effort in, the, in his first put a lot of effort year, into his nonpartisan first two, first two years in, to have nonpartisan elections, non-part- which, which would have solved this. Right. We never we never got there with the nonpartisan. Well, it would have saw it would have nonpartisan city elections, correct? So right. Well, are, you, are you trying to say that he tried all the parties and he decided that nonpartisan is best? Or that's cute, Celeste. <laughs> that's cute. No, what I'm saying is that uh, as I think I think I, I think you. Were, you, I think you covered in 2002 and in 2003 the um, the mayor was elected and kept kept his first term his first campaign's promise of trying to deliver nonpartisan elections. 
Obviously, the political parties were against him. Surprisingly, the the reform groups in this city opted with the the mainline political parties instead of going against them. Um, and um, and 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 um, and some smart and savvy politicians uh, used this as a good example or a good way to send a message about things that had nothing to do with partisan elections. One 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 candidate, Anthony Weiner, who who was at the time considered a very strong uh, contender, or at least a likely contender to run for mayor, he wasn't actually a strong one yet, ran around and told the New Yorkers, if you're angry about the smoking ban, if you're angry about the the uh, property tax hike, which is what's allowed us to keep our cops and our teachers and our firefighters employed and build new parks, um, then you should vote against the mayor's proposal. Send Mike Bloomberg a message. Overwhelmingly, they did for a whole host of reasons. And, and here we are. We have a – and here we are. So I I was looking for a villain here, and now I have found him. It is Anthony Weiner is the person who has ruined our hope for having nonpartisan elections. In New York I didn't City. say that. That's what you said. No, I said I was looking for a victim, Stu. That's uh, absolutely. Well, we're all the victim. He's the. Well, we're here with Stu Loser and Stu Katz here on Spin Class. We're talking politics and a uh, couple uh, quick uh, questions before we get to our next segment. Uh, Celeste, how would you how would you rate the competing state of the city addresses uh, uh, one obviously looking for uh, a new job and the other one looking for a legacy yeah i mean they're they're obviously just as you say i mean they're two very different speeches because there are two very different uh end games there they're two different goals i mean what mayor bloomberg is obviously trying to do in today's speech is that uh you know he does he did sort of uh, reaffirm his commitment to certain things that have you know uh, been important to him for a very long time. Certainly, uh, controlling the the flow of uh, illegal guns has been important to him. He's certainly been outspoken on immigration, uh, the Dream Act. So those two things did figure prominently in his speech. But a lot of it was sort of uh, really a, a greatest hits uh, kind of presentation that was really meant to remind people of what he wants them to to think when they look back, which is that you know his legacy he feels and some people feel and some people don't, was one of success, of prosperity, of, of uh, more jobs and less crime, of, of uh, more health and less pollution, that sort of thing. Um, Christine Quinn had to walk a certain line because she has been, um, she has been uh, in an alliance with the mayor that has benefited her in some ways, but um, would also potentially be dangerous to her in a, in a Democratic primary where people might tend to run further to the left. And so she has had to distance herself from the mayor on some issues uh, at the same time uh, without sort of throwing herself under the bus in terms of disavowing things that she's gone along with uh, the mayor on in the past. So uh, sort of a tightrope act there uh, and uh, arguably a more difficult, uh, more difficult job than, uh, than what Mayor Bloomberg had to do today. All right, well, if you had to assess very quickly, and I'll make it a, a, a yes, uh, an asset or a liability, Mike, Blo- uh, Mike Bloomberg to... Christine Quinn. Uh, well, I, what I will do is I will completely cheap out and sidestep that question by pointing to the uh, Marist uh, New York One poll, which is out tonight, which actually does test for the effect of Mayor Bloomberg's endorsement uh, in the mayor's race. And uh, their findings were that uh, 36% of the people they surveyed would be more likely to support a candidate endorsed by Bloomberg, 44% would be less likely to vote for that candidate, and 14% would not care. Are those likely Democratic primary that is, voters? That is among uh, that is among registered uh, registered New York voters. Yep. Hey, hey, Unfortunately, Celeste, what, what, that's what, not the first test. And what are the what, just just out of curiosity, um, what are we we all agree here that Chris Quinn is uh, Speaker Quinn is seen as closest to the mayor of the main candidates who are running for for mayor of of John Liu and Bill De Blasio and Bill Thompson and Christine Quinn. Three are running against Mike Bloomberg as, as 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 rejecting everything he's done, or virtually everything he's done. And Chris and, and Speaker Quinn is the only one who's in favor of it. What do the numbers say about Chris Quinn? Uh, you mean in today's uh, in today's Marist poll, the one that you just you just pulled up? I, I see I see what you're doing here, Stu. But yeah, you are correct that uh, she has uh, certainly a strong uh, double digit lead over her closest. Competitor Bill Thompson, she's at 37 percent in the primary. She, uh, he is at 13 percent. So if you're looking for these numbers to tell you a story that uh, you know 
people like Christine Quinn, okay, people like Christine Quinn, if you can automatically translate that to she's been close to Mayor Bloomberg, therefore people are happy with Mayor Bloomberg in those same proportions. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying of course he wasn't saying I'm saying, I'm saying the contrapositive. If, if, you, well, if asked explicitly about the endorsement, that's one thing. But the, but the, but the, but the premise of this race, the, 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 the underlying point, the under, three out of the four candidates running for mayor, and maybe four out of four, depending on how you interpret Chris Quinn's views, uh, three of the four say that, that Mayor Bloomberg is the kiss of death. The one who is closest, if, if I recall correctly, she's at 37 in this marriage, but the last marriage, she wasn't quite there. Her numbers have actually improved, and, yeah. and so she's now within three points, which is, I think is probably within the margin of error Celestis, of, of you, the 40% Celestis, chance of runoff. Celestis, you can tell Stu has mellowed since he has retired. There is no he's question. very calm. He's very, very, very calm. Celeste, I want to thank you for coming on to Spin Class. We are certainly going to continue this at a, at a future date. Stu Lozar, I want to thank you for being with us uh, this evening. And we are going to move on to our next segment. We have Ross Barkin on the line, who is uh, at the Politicker. And uh, he's profiling the special election coming up in Queens, or he has been writing about the re- the special election coming up in Queens. We are going to profile it here. And it is this Tuesday a special election, Ross? So why don't you give us the lowdown on what's sure. going on in Southeast Queens? All right, definitely. Uh, great, great to be on the show. Basically, um, in Southeast Queens, it's an eight candidate race right now, which is pretty nuts. Um, there, there's kind of there, there's a front runner. Um, Donovan Richard, he's been endorsed by the candidate, by, by um, James Sanders, who's now in the state Senate. If you recall, um, he defeated Shirley Huntley in a primary. Uh, she was indicted at the time. He won. He's in the state Senate. So you have Sanders is gone. It's a district in southeast Queens. It covers neighborhoods of Laurelton, Rosedale, Far Rockaway. Um, and basically, it's kind of a up-in-the-air race right now because you have – Donovan, you have Donovan Richards, who's kind of the front runner. He's amassed the most endorsements. He has by far the most money. But there's um, other candidates too. There's another guy, Jacques Leandre. He's an attorney. He actually has been in the news this week because he's defending a uh, man who was uh, beaten in Flushing, Queens. That was in the news, and he had a very well-timed news conference about that. And then, of course, there, there's a very interesting wrinkle in the election, which I think kind of would interest a lot of the people um, listening and certainly interested me that there's an Orthodox Jewish candidate in the race. And um, if you probably don't know, the district is 68% black. It's, it's always been represented by a, um African-American um, council member. It was Sanders for the past decade as Juanita Watkins the previous decade. But there's a, a small but growing enclave of um, Orthodox Jews in Far Rockaway. And their candidate, his name is Pesach Osina, he's running as well. Um, he, he was a staffer to the assemblyman in the area, a very uh, energetic guy, Phil Goldfeder. Um, and so he actually has a window, a lot of people think, to win the special election, which is a, an eight, one of their eight people in, and it's going to be a very low turnout. So that's kind of the compelling, interesting factor that there, there's a – uh, not only a white candidate, but an Orthodox Jewish candidate who could at least temporarily be representing a very um, black district, also a Hispanic district as well. So there have been some incendiary comments with regard to this. As uh, yes. some people, well, why don't you give us uh, some insight into that? Sure, sure. Well. Basically, um, there's a, a reverend, uh, I see a bishop now, his name's Chuck, uh, Charles Norris. He, he's a kind of power broker of sorts in the area. Um, you know, he, he's got a, he founded a big church in Jamaica. He's lived in Far Rockaway. He has been going to candidate forums. I, I interviewed him, and he was basically saying that candidates should drop out of the race because Otherwise, they're going to allow, and I'll, I'll quote him, a uh, young Jewish boy from the Rockaways to uh, win the race. And Pesach, I mean, Pesach Osina, he's young. He's not that young. He's in his uh, early, mid-30s. But basically, Norris and their other, you know, I spoke to an operative, an, a black operative who felt kind of the same way. There's a feeling that um, an, an, an ease and tension about uh, someone who is from kind of a small um, white community, possibly representing a district that's always had a black representative. 
Um, there's there's kind of, there's a history to this. I don't know. Do you want me to get into? I can talk about there. There's a David Yasky well, give comparison us, as well. Sure. Give us some background. Okay, that that that's sure. fair. But give us uh, some idea about who who did who should drop out of the race. I, there, if there are nine candidates or eight candidates, eight, eight, and well, you have I, and you have one is white and, and eight are African or seven are African American. Okay. So who? Sure. But um, but well, the, hold on hold on Ross the the okay. the, the African American community I, and I think we've seen this from other races is by no means monolithic right you have you have newer you have immigrants you have people who've been right. in the neighborhood for a long time you have different uh, ethnic communities within the within the uh, African American community right right actually I, I should have said it in my introduction um, not all the candidates running in the race are African American by any means Jacques Leandre who I mentioned before he's Haitian American you two right. Haitians you have a a Liberian candidate, that's Liberian Africa. So I mean, he is literally, you know, from Africa. You have um, so he's just know, African. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you had there's no Hispanic candidates, which is interesting. Um, and you have and, and you have a Jamaican candidate, Michael Duncan, who was Sanders' chief of staff as well at one time. So it, it's a it's a diverse field. You're asking about who should drop out. I think he never named names. There are certainly candidates who are less competitive um, than other candidates. You know, I actually, um, you know, Leandre would not drop out. He's run before. He's raised some money. Um, but, you know, that maybe he's suggesting someone like Sewala Kessely, who is a librarian who hasn't raised a lot of money. Alan Jennings is in this race, and as, as uh, many people know, Alan Jennings has been in the city council, represented a district totally different than this one, has raised an astounding $25, but is still petitioning to be in the race. So he's run as a Republican as well in the past. Yes, Alan Jennings uh, ran recently against Gregory Meeks, who's the congressman in the area, ran as a Democrat, lost the primary, kept the Republican line, kept running, lost again. He's been running ever since he's uh, lost in the, in the city council. Um, he's, he was censured for sexually harassing staffers. He's thrown a rock at a reporter. Wish I was making these things up. I'm not. He, he's kind of... Uh, I thought those things today. only happened in Albany. <laughs> they happen uh, apparently in New York City, too. We have a pretty wacky city. <laughs> um... But so uh, basically, that that's that's sort of the, the tension at play there. Um, that um, this, this Charles Norris um, wants some candidates to step aside. An operative likened Pesach Osina to David Yasky. David Yasky ran for Congress in a historically black district, still a black district. The difference was he moved into the district explicitly to run for it. Pesach Osina has lived in Far Rockaway since um, I think 1999, so not quite so, the fairest comparison. So he's right. got so he's got some roots. Let me ask you: How have the Jewish organizations uh, that typically decry and condemn this type of of rhetoric? How have they reacted in this situation? Well, they um, you know they're they're very upset about it. They um, are they feel that they were not done right by James Sanders. I think that that's very clear. Um, a, a good window into the thinking, Eli Shapiro, who's the treasurer for Pesach's campaign, he wrote a, um op-ed piece in uh, Five Towns, I think, Jewish Weekly. I don't know if that's the exact name, but this Five Towns Jewish paper, um, basically saying that we have to stand up for our community. You know, we've been here. The Far Rockaway Jewish Enclave is growing. Um, he cited a statistic which I thought was pretty interesting. He said of the, I think it was $30 million that had been allocated to the district in the past five years, their institutions received less than 1%. The op-ed piece took shots at Jacques Leandre for, I think he used the word siphoning off over a million dollars for his, uh, Football program which he runs. Um, there, there's very, there's very clear tensions at play between a, a small but growing community that kind of wants a responsive council member. Didn't get it from Sanders. Of course, we've seen instances where African American, uh, African American elected officials or Black elected officials are very responsive to the Orthodox community. You know, Major Owens when he was in Congress worked very well. With, with the Orthodox generally and, and other 
black elected officials do. But the sense I'm getting is that Sanders didn't really throw them too many crumbs. And now this is their chance to get back at Sanders in a way by making his chief of staff's life a little uncomfortable, which certainly he is. And um, there is a mathematical argument to be made that Pesaco Cena can win the special election. So I imagine this is this would be quite a stunner if he if uh, a white candidate ends up winning on Tuesday night. It, it, it would be. It definitely would be. Uh, if you're going from a pure, for putting aside the um, racial issues that will invariably pop up, I will say from a mathematical perspective, it's still a difficult call for him. The district is about 10 percent white. There are eight candidates. James Sanders did win with about 3,000 votes um, in 2009, and I, I was told by a source there's about 3,500 Orthodox Jews in in the district. The idea is if they all vote, um, literally all of them. Well, vote. we never have a situation where they all vote. I mean, right, right, exactly. I mean, it, that it literally needs to be where they all turn out in, in incredibly high numbers, and no one else. Either there's a very small turnout among the rest of the district and these other candidates kind of split votes. Which well, historically, a- historically, special sure. elections have very small turnout. But yes, as we're almost do. out of time, just two, sure. uh, two thoughts. Uh, the powerful Queens Democratic Party, how are they looking at this race? Well, I mean, special elections are technically nonpartisan, but they certainly would prefer, I'm sure, Donovan Richards to win. Um, he, he's been, uh, you know, he has all the institutional support, the uh, UFT. But uh, Sanders, his, his patron Sanders uh, was, has been at odds he, for years with the has. Queens Democrats. He, he has. I think that was, I think they put that aside a bit. They tacitly, I would say, backed they they tacitly backed him in the race against Huntley. Obviously, Huntley was indicted. But I, I think with, with the Queen's Democratic Party, the thinking goes, yes, they've had issues with Sanders. Yes, maybe that translates to Donovan Richards, who is only 29 years old. But at the same time, there's not necessarily a palatable alternative in the race for them either. Therefore, Richards is probably the default guy they'll do business with. And the, uh, and the Reverend Floyd Flake, who leads a mega church of uh, 20, 25,000 members or something like that. Where is he? Well, a very interesting question, and I, I was looking into it, and it, it doesn't seem like Floyd Flake is playing any real role in this race. Um, I, I've at, I called up actually today. Former congressman as well, I should, I should yes, add. Yes, yes, he's congressman, very much a, a power broker in the area. It's not really clear that he's even made an endorsement. There's been no no release of any kind. Um, the office knew nothing about it. I've asked them sources in the area. It seems like he's kind of staying out of this one. He probably doesn't see a horse he wants to back, though. I would say he backed Sanders in his primary against Huntley, so maybe that means he will accept Richards, but it seems like he's stayed out of this one, which I think is kind of interesting. And Greg Meeks and uh, Malcolm Smith? Greg Meeks and Malcolm Smith too. Not not a you know not a whole lot for them. Wow, either. That, that's it, it, that's it, pretty incredible that the Queens Power Brokers, Southeast Queen Power Brokers, have not taken any uh, any any view on this race. It's it's, it's a strange you know it's definitely kind of a strange thing. I think the, I think Donovan Richards would be kind of their their default. So why are they again. not going all out for him? That's a question that will remain till Tuesday. We are here with yeah. Ross Barkin uh, uh, from the Politicker uh, and the Observer. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We hope thank to have you. you again on Spin Class soon. Yes, uh, Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ross. So just if we're going to have a quick final word for this uh, Thursday night, I just want to draw everybody's attention to the Stafford Act, an amendment to the Stafford Act, which allowed FEMA to fund the repairs of houses of worship. Very important bill to the Orthodox community, very important bill to the Catholic community, very important bill to all communities that had their houses of worship destroyed or 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 damaged during FEMA. And... It was sponsored by Grace Mang, Democrat, Chris Smith, a Republican in the House, and it was wonderfully bipartisan support in New York, except for one congressman in New York City, Jerry Nadler, who represents probably the largest Orthodox Jewish community in the city. He opposed it. He stood reluctantly to say that he could not support this bill and and uh, actually argued against it, said it was unconstitutional. 
Uh, I have to say, Jerry, uh, very unfortunate. I think that you certainly could have come around and you should have supported it. And you have a large community to answer to, and hopefully they will take you to task. This is Spin Class, Politics with Michael Fragan, on the Thursday Night Extravaganza. Stay tuned for the Book of Life with Charlie Harari. (laughs) 